Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 42 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. How and I are back today. We are recording on Monday, February 12th. It is just before market close here today. It's 1248 in the afternoon Pacific time. And this episode will go live on Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. We are not going to talk about Valentine's Day on today's show. Uh, however, I'm sure you could weave in uh, some some reasons to think about uh, your significant other during today's podcast. Uh, for example, the first agenda item is the true cost of admission to things like Disneyland or, say, Clear, getting through the airport or those kinds of things. Uh, we thought we would dissect that because two people can go to Disneyland and spend dramatically different, different amounts of money and get a completely different experience. Uh, second item today is a layoff tracker. How found a really cool website. It's called layoffstracker.com. And it, as you might wonder what it does, uh, it tracks layoffs. And uh, it's actually pretty cool to see all the January, not cool, but it's uh, uh, a, a nice way to gather all the data for all the layoffs that happened in January. Did anybody else get surprised by that stuff in the news? January rolled around and all of a sudden companies were laying off again? I thought that was interesting. Number three, all-time high after all-time high after all-time high. The S&P hit an all-time high, 5,000 points. Pretty amazing. We thought we'd dissect that. And then finally, NVIDIA is bigger than Amazon? Whoa. It's true. All right. It's true. At least for a second. All right, let's dive in here. So uh, the true cost of admission, how you had a, a couple of items here that you thought were interesting. So why don't you enlighten us on your uh, recent research on this? Yeah, well, there, there's been a uptick in, you know, experiential spending, like going to Disneyland and taking vacations and whatnot, right? And I think places are overcrowded and businesses seem to be responding in kind especially Disneyland where you and I could both buy the same admission ticket, but if you're willing to pony up extra money, you can save time waiting at concessions or even rides, right? I, I've, mm-hmm. I'm not a Disney file or by any stretch, but um, I, I believe it's you know percentage of your admission ticket and you get Fast Pass or whatever they call it, where you don't have to wait in line for you know, on average of two hours per per ride, right? And if you're really hitting two hours per ride, you could maybe ride four, four, four rides a day. Yeah. And what, Three, because the kids cost? can't make it that long. Yeah, what does God. Disney cost? $120 for a single-day pass? I actually have no idea. Yeah, but that's what everyone – that's the baseline experience that you're paying for, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to reduce that two-hour wait time, which, you know, I think if you value time over – a certain amount of money you got to at least consider that 
Mm-hmm. I think waiting 30 minutes in line, is that too much or too short? Versus two hours, which I personally think is way too long for a single ride. I don't care how great it is. That's a long <laughs> time. Especially if you're baking in the sun in Southern California. Yeah. So, uh, I'm just we're just using Disney as an example, but you know, clear uh, TSA pre-check, where you see all the people who don't have to wait in the long security line that I sit in. Which again, it's maybe what thirty minutes in the worst possible airport from my experience. But if you pay pre-check, you can get on the shorter line. You're still going through security checks, but I don't know how much that costs. But there's a cost to that where the a certain level of the population can get through because they're willing to pay, right, and reduce the time spent in security lines or ride lines at a theme park. Is that fair? Well, okay, that yeah. also comes with that extra benefits. I have, I have, I have TSA pre-check. I do not have clear. I want to say TSA pre-check is like eighty-nine bucks a a go, and it, it's good for five years. So, like, it's very inexpensive but what i want to say is that the additional benefits are you can keep your shoes on you can go through kind of just the metal detector which is a quicker line you can leave your laptop laptop in your bag laptop in your bag stuff like that whereas when you go through the normal line you know you've got to go through a lot slower of a process and so if you're optimizing your time at the airport i.e you don't want to get there a full two hours before your flight or more um that I think can really start to add value. It's a, it's a, to me, a very low price of admission to having less time uh, at the airport. But maybe that's my own personal view. You as a non pre-check person, why, why wouldn't you do that? Why, why wouldn't you become pre-check? Uh, I've personally, well, I fly to Sacramento, so it's not like it's, a wild line like I would ah, expect. Your to airport's pretty much pre-checked no matter what. Yeah, it's that pretty, makes sense to me. Pretty easy to get through Sacramento yeah, yeah. Airport. Um and I travel I think once every six months and it's mostly for work related. To reasons. come to our events. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I'm not a big traveler. And I think the biggest thing is, yeah, what what airport do you go to? If I were in the Atlanta airport, which I know is massively busy, or Chicago here. Yeah. Massively Dallas, busy. Worth. Yeah. So I think those airports might be worth it. Seattle, obviously, right? Seattle seems to me to be a very, very busy hub relative to Sacramento. Um, so that's one thing. I that don't makes a lot of sense. The, yeah. Uh, again, I've never been bothered by the, the security lines, even though if they seem very long, we've always kind of been processed through relatively quickly. Yeah. And if I do show up to my flight two hours early, I find myself sitting around for an hour and a half because... Yeah. yeah, I've been processed so fast. Yeah, taking the shoes off is a bit of a headache. Taking your belt off and you're taking your laptop out of your bag and trying. When you're trying to get all this stuff in, like after you've been X-rayed, it's yeah. it's a lot of work to get to kind of get yourself collected. So I could see yeah. where it's worth that. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Well, but, still, I mean, these these examples are are everywhere, right? Amazon yeah. Prime, pay a certain amount of money, you get benefits, faster shipping, free shipping, these kinds of things. Walmart has the same thing, Walmart Plus. Um, Costco membership, do you want to get in and buy stuff or not? 
yeah. have to pay a membership fee. And these fees are generally pretty low on an annual basis, uh, but then they gain you access to certain certain goods, possibly a higher end good or even just the good at all in the case of, say, Costco, whereas you have to be a member. I think your point is interesting, though. Like Disney to me is different, right? Because Disney is a is a use is a usage fee. And what if I went to Disney twice or three times this year? Now I got to pay that usage fee two or three times versus, you know, everything else, whether it's just a pre or Costco membership or something. That's an annualized thing. Um, something's very low cost in the case of TSA pre, you know, 89 bucks for five years. So yeah, I think Disney's interesting. I'm just trying to think of other examples of kind of the Disney related ones, which are pay per use, pay more money to get a better experience versus just, um, pay kind of one time a year and gain yeah. access. Yeah. And we're, we're specifically citing a CNN article who questions the, the fairness of it all, mm. but they do mention like concert tickets. Like if I were watching Bruce Springsteen and I wanted front row seats, you know, for that better experience, I'm paying up, you know, three times, four times the amount than to sit in the bleachers, right? There's okay, a, that's fair. Yeah, you know same I mean? concert. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm just getting a better, different experience. Are, if you're paying for the experience, I think I'm I think I'm okay with that. I mean, again, we don't go to Disneyland as a family too much. And I think that... I'll never go. <clears throat> different never podcast, go. but I'll never go. Yeah. No. Yeah, we admittedly we are going to go to the Japan and then visit Disney in Japan, which is like a fraction of the cost here in Southern California. That's but, cool. You should do that. Yeah, there's lines out the wazoo that that from what I'm aware of, and you still have to pay premium pricing to reduce wait times. And if you're cutting out time, yeah. and you value your time, I think that there's a fair there's a level of fairness to that. I think we mm -hmm. can agree with that, right? Yes. Okay. But the article is saying that the have-nots, again, you're going to Disney, discretionary spending is at an all-time high. If you can't afford the boost, is it fair? Is it fair from your point of view? I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't be going to Disney if that's the, the line of demarcation, right? Like if it's that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. uh, I know some people who've gotten raises. And a Wall Street Journal quoted this guy from Sacramento, coincidentally. He got a raise. He ended up taking his family uh, to Disney twice a year since he's gotten his raise. So that lifestyle creep has gone way up, hmm. right? Someone like someone like that who goes pretty frequently, is there room to complain or room to criticize the policies that are in place there? Hmm. Well, but it's also like parking closer to or further from the sports venue, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. You could park, I don't know, a 15-minute walk away for, I don't even know anymore, 20 bucks or something. Or you could park pretty darn close for like 100 bucks. And so, again, it comes back to the, yes, it's an income thing on like what can I afford or not, or, you know, what can yeah. somebody afford or not. But it also is a is a time thing because I think there there's definitely a lot of people out there, and I would say myself included, that would look at a certain price of something and be like, nope. I'll walk, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not paying that. And I will then purposefully go keep driving out to be further and further away yeah. to then walk back in and, you know, yeah, the walk's healthy. It's all good. Yeah. I was in Seattle during the all-star weekend. Um, mm -hmm. is it T-Mobile stadium? Yep. Yep. Okay. It was literally a block. It was $40 to 
six blocks out, for example, one block mm-hmm. in, it jumped to eighty dollars. So it's like, okay, if you're willing to pay forty yeah. extra dollars for a single block, yes, have at it. If someone's pricing it and you're willing to pay, I can't complain that you walk a block less than I do. That's interesting. <laughs> right? Right? Should go it like forty, sixty, a... eighty, but it jumps right to eighty. Yeah, yeah. We weren't yeah. going to the game. We were going to the Coast Guard for my brother-in-law who's retiring. But the Coast Guard base is right across the street from T-Mobile. Or of course. Is it T-Mobile? Where the Mariners It's play? T-Mobile Park, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, send us your other examples of that. I think that's interesting. Um, you know, these usage fees and these, these, these things that are conveniences, I think uh, our point is that some of them are very, very in reach for all of America. Some of them are not. But yeah. then some of them also try to pack in more and more benefits, which I know we've talked in, talked to on a prior episode, uh, talked to that point on a prior episode, which is how the the um, online services, the value of online services has continued to erode. You know, Netflix cost is going up and yeah. prime video costs going yeah. up and that kind of thing. <clears throat> so, you know, as we pack more and more things into that $100 a year membership or whatever it is, um, ultimately that price goes up or uh, the, the, the price that you pay is ultimately subsidized by something, you know, selling your data or ads or something like that. So if I were going to say let's this, if, sorry, go back go to, ahead, go ahead. let's say the going to Disney in the nineties where I don't know, I would assume that these fast passes and apps didn't exist in terms of getting your wait times reduced. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the, the question is, are they minimizing or reducing the level of service or you know giving giving you your buck back like a, mm-hmm. you know what i mean i i'm really butchering it up but like what's are they taking value away from away from the baseline i don't know but you know what's interesting too is that the more and more people that buy into that fast past example the the worse and worse the experience is for the non fast pass people correct because you have gobs and gobs of people getting in before more you people skipping your in. line, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, which your, your point here in the in the article, and I think this should be said, is you know cutting in front of someone someone generally is unethical. It's rude. Yeah. But you're literally giving yourself a license to do so. Yeah. In in that environment, which is super interesting, and the more people that pay for that, the worse the experience for everybody else is. Yeah, and we, again, if you go to Disney a lot, let us know. But we're we're speaking from a point of. Non Disney goers, admittedly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, let's move on. Layoffstracker.com. Cool website. This, uh, this really highlights, and I've, I've got it up here on my other screen. So this highlights all of the, the, the number of layoffs per month and then the number of companies that are announcing layoffs in that month. Um, for a little bit of context, this spiked in January of 2023. Yep. 328 companies announced layoffs, 117,000 people were laid off in that month. I guess I don't know if that means they were laid off in that month or if they were announced to be laid off. Do you happen to know? I think yeah, they say. was officially laid off in the data. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then, uh, you know, February was also another 54,000 or so. March was another 65,000. So layoffs were, you know, quite a bit in the early part of last year. And then they, they fell. But then they spiked in January. And I think most notable, we've seen big tech do a round of layoffs here yeah. in, in the last couple of weeks. Most notable for me, though, is Citibank. 
Citibank laid off, was that 10%? 10%, yeah. Is it, it's a huge company. 10%, 22,000 people, 10% of their workforce, huge company. Um, that's, that's a lot. Um, so 36,000, almost 37,000 people were laid off in January, announced. Um, many of those came from City. 45 companies announced and 37,000 people. Uh, how, what do you make of all this data here as you explain it to our listeners? Yeah, I think you mentioned one of the seasonal patterns that was a business surprise to me. It's layoffs in January seem to spike. So maybe the companies that were planning layoffs don't really pull the trigger until after the holidays, which, again, it's not a fun yeah. experience whether you wait or not, but I think it helps lessen the impact if, you know, laying someone off in the middle of December versus middle of January. I think that I think that's really impactful on a personal level. Um, and I think there's, going to like the broader tech side of things, I think there's a bit of peer pressure or stock, you know, stock shareholder <clears throat> pressure going on where, yep. hey, I'm a shareholder of Google. I'm just using this as an example. So the, the timelines are going to be off. But if I'm a shareholder of Google and Facebook and Google lays off people first, I'm going to go to Facebook if I have enough voting shares. like, hey, what are you doing to cut costs? I know things are okay, yeah. but yeah. if your competitors are cutting costs, what are you? why are you sitting on your hands? And um, You could see tech companies tend to cluster. And Google, mm -hmm. Microsoft, uh, Meta, and Amazon cracked the top 10 of the list. Twitter as well, uh, for probably other reasons, but... That's a lot of crowding when the tech se sector has done so well in the last, let's say, year and a half in terms of bottom line growth, sure. which is you know, probably coincidental with all the layoffs and overhead reduction. So leading the list here, so this is January of 2022 to present. So this is data through January of 2024. So we've got two solid years of data. The number one company is Amazon, 37,250 people laid off. Number two is Meta, 27,000 to 11. City that just announced, 23,000. Accenture, about 21,000. Microsoft, 16,000. Nokia, didn't even know that yeah, a lot of people still worked in Nokia. Yeah. 14,000 people, I wonder how many are left. Um, <laughs> that's actually interesting that it's even broken out like that. Anyway, uh, Google, 14,000 as well. And then uh, the next one down that people would recognize, Twitter, 9,500, Salesforce, 9,300, ByteDance, 9,000. Um, so I think your point is interesting though, right? Like big tech laid off a big number of people and you, you kind of don't want to be the only tech company that's not laying off. It's sort of an excuse. And I actually heard this on another podcast. If everybody's doing it, it's sort of your excuse to go do it yourself and say, well, Correct. hey, this thing that we're investing in over there, you know, we don't, you know, we might continue to do that, but let's just cut our costs and call it a layoff. Um, and we have a good excuse to doing it now because everybody's doing it versus you don't want to be the only company starting a layoff for your specific Correct. product line that you want to cut. Because that signals so, something, right? Because right? it signals if, something, yeah. Whereas yeah. now it's just an excuse to kind of follow the herd. Yeah. Yeah. And I know. I remember we talked about it quite a while ago. At this, it seems like forever. Uh, when the, the layoffs first started happening, we were saying, "Well, it's more likely a result of overhiring during COVID." Remember right. when 
Amazon was hiring everybody they could. Right. Um, So I think the the biggest thing is, is this a normalization of the over hiring that we're dealing with? Or is this kind of a look ahead where, you know, our business lines aren't growing as much and we need to reduce some of the overhead there? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, yeah. So, uh, once again, everyone, you can check this out. It's layoffstracker.com. Um, it is worth noting that even the, the cumulative number of layoffs here, uh, are a rounding error compared to the jobs created. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just been a huge, oh, interesting. You can search by tech and non-tech. Yeah. That's cool. Hold on. Sidetrack. Got to click this button. I accidentally now ran into see. that way where you're talking. Okay, so <clears throat> interesting that Amazon is here under non-tech, but that's okay. Um, oh, 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 oh. Amazon's here twice because they are tech and non-tech. Yeah, consumer so, discretionary and then AWS type of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, the, the, the workers in Seattle, Bellevue, Virginia area. So, okay, so 37,000 people laid off at Amazon on the tech side, on the non-tech side, it says a hundred thousand, which has got to be, you know, warehouse and delivery and services and that kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, but to round that out quickly, GM, 35,000 people, Disney, 21,000 people, Ford, 13,000 people. Then these others are, are a bit smaller, but Ericsson's on here. David's bridal. I think that's cause they were bought credit Suisse, Novartis, GE, Coca-Cola. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. Loan Depot, 7-Eleven. Hmm. Must be headquarters. Okay, anyway, check this out. It's a cool resource. It's a cool resource. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on. All-time high after all-time high after all-time high. Fun fact for you all. Did you know that markets generally spend 50% of their time, 50%, 5-0, of their time within 5% of the all-time high? 50% of the time within 5% of the all-time high. So this is very commonplace. And uh, I think what's interesting here, so on Friday, the S&P 500, which is a commonly looked at index that Chris likes to refer to as the uh, standard and poor's is a poor standard. You don't want to benchmark your whole life to it, but that's okay. It closed about 5,000 for the first time on Friday. Um, that was an all-time high. And um, I think what's interesting and what we'll unpack a little bit today is that 5,000 doesn't really mean anything, right? It's a big round number, but there's nothing significant about 5,000 over 5,050 over 5,100 over 4,700 or whatever, right? It's just a number. It's just a level. And um, you all have heard us, depending on how long you've been listening, kind of gripe at the media when uh, they will quote a point fall or gain on the Dow versus a percent point or gain on the Dow, because a point gain is a bigger number. And, you know, the Dow is a, is a high point scale these days. And so uh, it's a way to market and kind of spin the numbers to make it sound more, you know, largest point drop in history. Well, duh. That's because yeah. it's, it's, that's just how it works, you know? Um, okay. So you had some, there was a couple of articles here that you reviewed and you put some notes in the deck. So I want to let you unpack this for our listeners uh, and just what you think about the market hitting an all-time high on last Friday. Yeah, I think a lot of these articles, you know, generate clicks by saying we're at record highs or 
the stock market's never been this high in history. But if you look mm -hmm. at a stock market chart going back to whenever, really, pick any period, right? The chart goes up, right? Every time it goes up, that's essentially creating a new high. So we've been creating new highs for the last hundred years, give or you know, give or take a few sell-offs. Like we're five years away from nineteen twenty-nine, uh, the the one year, one hundred year anniversary of the Great Depression. Um, not forecasting anything. I'm just saying, really, the long-term chart of a uh, the S and P, which we know there's more things to invest in than just this the U.S. large cap space, but it goes up. The line mm -hmm. goes up because the economy expands. And another part that we're talked about is overhead gets reduced. So the profits and margins are growing, even mm -hmm. when revenue drops, right? Because I'm Disney and I'm having, you know, 50% of the visitors pay double the price all of a sudden. I could have fewer, you know, people visiting and reduce headcount because only half the people could afford to go to my parks. Yep. Super extreme example. But I think that... Well, Meta yeah. is the super extreme example. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Yeah, go ahead. 25% fewer people and... I mean, are they... Blockbuster up profits, yeah. 40 or 50%. I mean, it, 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 nobody in business history has ever accomplished what they've accomplished in the last 12 months. It's incredible. Yeah. And I think they're changing the way economies are being measured in terms of company expectations, <clears throat> right? So <clears throat> I think the, the natural inclination is markets at all-time high, I should sell. I think that's what we're trying to promote. Or I shouldn't right? buy. I shouldn't buy, right? And I think, one, yes, there's some truth to falling out of a third-story window and injuring yourself versus falling out of a basement window, right? <laughs> One's going to hurt you more than the other. But what's what's unnatural about this over the last two years was this was only the seventh time in history where markets weren't creating new highs in over two years. You think about how rare that was from 2022 to t till now, right? Hmm. We rarely go that long without creating new highs because one, we, we mentioned companies being smart about their business, right? If the Microsoft CEO was sitting on his hands and just benefiting from all the AI hype. Is he doing his job if he's not reacting to market dynamics? Of course not. That's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. If un the unfortunate bug is they'll lay off when they need a layoff, which happens. Mm -hmm. It's just happening now. But if the economy doesn't expand, CEOs have all kinds of levers that they could pull to mm -hmm. reignite expansion on top of the Fed, fiscal, everything that goes into growing and expanding the, the pie, which has been happening over 100 years now. So mm -hmm. I think people need to stop looking at, you know, psychological numbers like 5,000 and having it prevent them from investing because... Yeah, it's the how much higher can it really go mentality, yeah. right? Like yeah. 5,000 never been there before. How much higher can it go before it comes down? Um, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a toxic thought. Yeah. Cause one is implying you're th smarter than the market is right. Market generally kind of goes one, yeah. goes the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're fighting 
history, what Chris mentioned, 85% of the time it's within 5% of all-time highs. 50%. All time is, 50%, 50% of the time it's within 5%. 50% of the time it works all the time. But well, you think that, about... Yeah, that's true too. You think about how much new money creation is being made globally, not just the U.S., for you to set this out is really fighting against a lot of history. And you're also fighting against millions of market participants who probably don't care about 5,000 is your barometer or not. And again, yeah. we're getting back to the markets don't care about your feelings, but it's pretty true. Well, look, I, I think some of our listeners are probably sitting here going, okay, market hit an all-time high. It had a great year last year. It was up you know, 24% before reinvested dividends, 26% after reinvested dividends roughly. And that's on the S&P, which is different than a diversified portfolio. Your return might not be that return. You might own some bonds, blah, 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 blah. But I think people might be sitting here going, well, I can earn 5% of my cash. Yeah, yeah. Why would I go and invest in a market that's already gone up 25% last year when I can earn 5% of my cash? And, and, and here's, I just want to sprinkle in some historical facts. So in the 12 months following an all-time high, the S&P index has returned on average 13 0.7%. This dates back to January 1st, 1988. I posted this on LinkedIn for anybody that follows me. And the source here is JP Morgan. So uh, if you invest at the all-time high, you got a, on average, 13.7% return in the upcoming year, in the following year. If you invested on any day, you got an 11.9% return. Okay, a little bit less, but I think the point is it's still a good return. Generally, yeah, it's positive. In the two-year, invest at the all-time high. So two years from last Friday, 28.9% is the average return versus 24.9%. So 4% difference. Again, still positive, both positive. And finally, at the three-year, 48%. If you invested last Friday on the all-time high, three years, 48%, not bad, versus 40.2%. So it's about an 8% difference investing on any day. I think our point here is the number should almost be a trigger if you're if you were on the sidelines before, it should be a trigger that you should get in. Yeah. Be yeah. diversified, stay diversified, stay calm, keep investing per paycheck, do everything that you're doing. But it's not a trigger to keep out. It would be a trigger Correct. to stay in or get in if you're not already in. But this is in stark contrast of what happened in twenty two. It's like, well, I'm not gonna invest because things are gonna get worse. Right, I'm going to invest, and I'm going to lose thirty percent. And I was like, "Well, after already a twenty-six percent drawdown, you're 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 afraid of another thirty percent on top of that." Yes, yeah. there's it should be always fear of that, but you're using a very different excuse now when markets are all at all times highs, all time highs. Well, I just now have more to lose. Maybe investing isn't your thing, right? And I think that's I think that makes it. There's always going to be something, and despite mm -hmm. all the evidence, you're always going to find something to poke at i think it is media generated too it's, to be fair there all the focus has been on the s p 5000 never been higher in the history of the stock market i can say the same thing about the s p in 2013 2014 the Dow's same yeah. thing yeah, yeah 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 it just keeps going up because expansion right we're generating and creating wealth right and that's 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 the 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 clear thesis that you need to kind of 
look at and forget all the noise, including stock market price. Right? I couldn't think of a more noisy data point. Oh, geez. And if, yeah, if you're looking at investment as a price barometer, Chris mentioned Dow. Dow is probably the worst index you could probably quote, but it gets mm-hmm. a lot of headlines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I want to come back some, to something that you said because I think it's important. So investing at the all-time high generally goes the right direction. Yeah. When you look forward in enough time, sometimes that will backfire like it did in uh, January of 2022, right, when things started to come down. And I think it's important to note, come back to something that we said earlier. Um, so Friday's high of 5,000 marked the seventh time in history that the S&P 500 took more than two years to make a new all-time high. You already said it, but I just wanted to reiterate that again. Sometimes it will take time, and sometimes you will not hit the perfect time. And you will, of course, kick yourself that you invested at the exact wrong time. But hopefully, you're still buying on the way down as things are coming down, and that your return, personally, doesn't actually take that exact two years. And what I mean by that is, if you're dollar cost averaging on the way down, you will actually get your own all-time high in a portfolio before the market is actually back to its own all-time high. Because the gains on the positions that you made when the market was down 10, 15, 20% or wherever the low was will help you make up that time in months. So I hope that makes sense. Um, But again, disclaimer, this won't always work. But generally, when you look out far enough, markets go up and to the right. And that's the Correct. direction that they continue to go. And we're saying you can't have it both ways. When things are bad, you couldn't assume things were going to get worse. If things are good, you can't assume things are going to get worse. Then right. you, that's what makes it hard to invest as a pessimist because mm-hmm. you're just going mm-hmm. to look for things to crash. Mm-hmm. And if if that's the mindset, that's going to be very tough to have anything. Like what, let's say the S&P sells off by 2% tomorrow. The world's going to fall on, on you because you're already expecting it. And... Yeah, is two percent drawdown normal? Yeah, actually very normal. Yeah. You're in, you're out. Very normal. So you should ex- expect a pullback at one point, but it might take longer than a lot of us expect, right? Because the market going back to '97 was pretty expensive for four full years. So I'm not sure. saying chase chase the dot com, but it took four years for the market to realize it was expensive, right? Yeah. So I think I think people got to get over some of the, I don't know, the, the suggestions of the, the financial media saying we're at all-time highs because that, that is actually pretty common news. Mm-hmm. 50% of the time, it works every time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on. NVIDIA is valued at more than Amazon now. Holy moly. That happened like overnight. So NVIDIA is also at a record high, about 735 bucks a share as of the time of this writing. $1.82 trillion in market value is what that would put it at. And uh, at the time, Amazon was valued at $1.81 trillion, just a few billion away from Google, which is $1.87. Crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. What do you think? Yeah, this this one... You know, NVIDIA's made new all-time highs, I would just eyeball it, seven or eight times alone last year. So mm. um, there there were a lot of people, including in our internal discussions, like, this can't last. 
mm-hmm. right? Because they do one thing. Amazon does lots of things, right? Amazon Prime, AWS, Google, Amazon Shopping. All of the big ones yeah. do lots of things, yeah. Yeah. This company does one thing is create graphics processing units, right? Are they are they able to justify their valuation? Like meaning are they worth over seven hundred dollars a share on the back of one maybe ga- potentially game changing technology, AI, which is still relatively raw and new? Like what what if AI is a dud? Like who does Nvidia sell to? Well maybe again they, they sell the picks and shovels, right? to gold miners. But in technology, it always seems sure. to be a new gold to dig for, right? And cryptocurrency or AI or increased computing power. I think that's one one thing that NVIDIA might have going for it. But it's a very singular concentrated business line. I don't know how they would keep it up. That's actually pretty interesting. I mean, has there ever been another company with a essentially one product that has led the marketplace apple apple yeah apple kind of sells one product and then monetizes that product in an an incredible way but and they've they've done a nice job over the years of reducing iphone revenue as a percentage of their revenue to to try to diversify their business which i think is why they've been able to command a, a higher value over time but yeah, Apple is it would be the other one that comes to mind. But still it's a product that kind of does a lot of things. It is one product. Maybe I just don't fully get it, right? Maybe somebody can tell me why. Um and Nvidia has a massive backlog, right? Like they yeah. have to deliver all these processors cuz you can't build them fast enough. You know, the hundreds of thousands that have been ordered. Yeah, and we were saying internally that, you know, $400 a share Nvidia can't get much higher. Isn't it's nearly double from that? What we yeah. thought was the high point. I think we're bringing this up because, one, back to the S and P five thousand example, you don't know where the real high is, and that's the thing with investing is you don't know where the real high is until after it's yep. sold out hindsight. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's always yeah. hindsight. So, does Nvidia stay more valuable than Amazon? I think that's the question. How does it do it? But what should you do as an investor? Right? So if you, you hit hit it really big on NVIDIA, do you diversify? I don't know. Because what if we t- said, hey, we, you sell, and it goes to 1500 and it becomes as valuable as Apple? Right. Because Amazon isn't... Which, again, seems unheard of game. with one product yeah. that's a component, but... And this is where a broader financial planning discussion would be warranted in terms of, you know, what percentage of your overall net worth is in a single stock and this sort of thing. So, but, you know, today and on this podcast, we're really here to talk about markets and economy and that kind of thing. So it becomes a little bit more difficult to answer the should you sell or not question because it's quite individualized to yeah. people's own situation and their financial plan and their risk tolerance and their age and all these kinds of things. So, uh, but selling into the wind of a uh, dramatically up stock is never a bad idea. Take a little risk off the table. Yeah. Well, I think um, a couple of things with you, you, did you watch the GameStop movie on Netflix, uh, Dumb Money? No. Okay. They did a good job of dramatizing 
um, people looking on the Robinhood apps and GameStop, mm. and they said, well, I'm going to sell 100. GameStop goes to 480, right? Even if it was temporary, they they were like, I missed out. And mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of it right now might be propagating anyone who missed out on NVIDIA might be jumping in still at this point because they mm-hmm. don't want to miss out. Um, mm-hmm. I think greed's a very powerful push for specific mm-hmm. stocks or really any asset class, right? Look at housing in 2007. I think the mm-hmm. the biggest thing with NVIDIA is, yeah, like Chris said, planning, scaling is probably the biggest. If it's like 100% of your net worth, maybe, right? I think you've done really well if it's 100%, but maybe trim a little. Um, but at the same time, if you doubt that it's done, I think your history is going to show you that you're wrong. I think that's, I man, I'm talking to myself too, because, yeah, we've seen stock yeah, goes, go to unbelievable heights before, and, like, there seems to be well, a limit to, yeah, upside. But but let's come back to, to 2020, right? All of the COVID yeah. darlings, the, the Zooms and the Redfins and the Zillows and these companies that were DocuSigns that were just yeah. blew up. <laughs> Everybody's going to need DocuSign. It's going to be worth 10x. And then they fell and they have not come back. Yeah. So you just, you don't know until you know. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's such an important financial planning decision uh, to, you don't to hold or sell. Yeah, exactly. Can you, what happens if it gets cut in half? What happens if it goes to a quarter of the value? Um, you know, can your plan still make it? Or did the rise of a single stock in your portfolio literally make your plan? At which point, possibly you're in a position to be able to de-risk. You could take more yeah. risk because your plan's working and you have years, or you could de-risk because you don't need to take the risk anymore. And I, I think that's super important for people to think about in the context of a larger financial planning discussion, um, because it can it can go down faster than it goes up. We all know yeah, that I- markets sell off faster than they go up. Yeah, I think on the flip side. To what Chris just said is, I think single stock investing make, is hard because you don't know where the top is at the same time, right? Yeah. I I bought Chipotle at its IPO back in 2005, mm. 2006, and after it doubled once, right, I sold it. You know how much I, in terms of percentage gains I've left on the table, <laughs> thousands of percents. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem with. That's why I brought up that GameStop um, drama in the movie where. Their family's like, well, you, you made 2x, 3x. You got to sell. But the problem is you don't know where the top was until it, it was too late mm-hmm. or you were too early, mm-hmm. right? And I know very few people who can time these things. I don't know anyone who can time these things perfectly, but you see what we're saying is you don't know where the true top, like Apple's a great example. I could tell you countless amount of people who've owned Apple at one point or another since 2002, and have sold and after they doubled. Yeah. <laughs> I've owned the Apple three or four times and did not let it grow and compound mm-hmm. because one, I made the mistake of over allocating to it, meaning all my, all my trading dollars were in Apple. Mm-hmm. And I was living and dying by watching my phone app at the time, Scott mm-hmm. Trade, move up mm-hmm. and down. Are right? you Scott Trade too back yeah. in the day? <laughs> yeah. But what, that's what we're saying is uh, the folly of single stock trading the amount of stress and what if just just expands, right? Yeah. Like what if you own NVIDIA market weight, 5%, it goes to zero. 
your portfolio is down 5%. Not the end of the world. Yeah. If it's 100% or whatever percent that Chris was mentioning with the, the excess, right? What level is that where if it goes to zero, what are you comfortable with? 10, mm-hmm. 15, 20%? Really mm-hmm. depends on your plan, but I think I think stocks are meant to be <laughs> held for the long term because we, we don't know where AI is going. What, what if it is world changing? Mm-hmm. Is NVIDIA suddenly a $3 trillion company? <clears throat> yeah, because AI is certainly priced in to be world changing. Yes. Right? That's reflected in all these stock prices now of all of big tech. But now it has to deliver. It and has there'll to, be some right? sort of a movement, whether that means yes or no. Yeah. Yeah. And this is pretty binary. What if it doesn't? What is What if it ends up being way yeah. more expensive than, you know, for companies to implement and way less derived value? You know, Microsoft is releasing a $30 per seat uh, add-on to your office subscription. Correct. How is much that productivity? Enough? Yeah, yeah. How much productivity is going to add to a business to warrant <clears throat> one them willing to buy it? Yeah. And two, like you know what I mean? Like, is and is I, it enough? And in theory, I mean, it should be ten x or a hundred x, right? If if yeah. these types of things can be, you know, their product is copilot. If it can be your copilot, it should be huge above the thirty dollars. But then, if it ends up being way more expensive than Microsoft plan. Are they now subsidizing yeah. that $30 with something else? And so that, I think it'll be super interesting to watch this play out in the last next number of years. Um, God, I'd love to be behind the pricing model of these types of things. Like, yeah. I'm sure that wasn't just pulled out of it. Ah, 30 bucks. Let's try that. <laughs> I'm sure there was a reason, right? It's fascinating. But you're, you're banking on AI working. Let's say AI doesn't work, right? Let alone, let's throw NVIDIA out. AI doesn't work as a whole, mm-hmm. is your portfolio overly concentrated to AI exposure or not? And I think, mm-hmm. would, can you, if AI doesn't work, is the US economy going to be okay? Yeah, pretty mm-hmm. positive of that. So mm-hmm. you see what we're saying is your level of concentration really does matter. And it just get, gets more highlighted when you have a single stock like it in NVIDIA mm-hmm. or an Apple or Microsoft. It's, it becomes that big of an issue. <clears throat> yes, you'll get rich. You get poor really fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting case, right? Your, your case of doesn't work could be Microsoft comes out and says, "Hey, we're seeing adoption a little bit less. We're seeing costs a little bit higher. You know, we're gonna we're gonna cut our growth or investment into this area." Boom, that swings right back to Nvidia because they're buying all these processors from Nvidia, yeah. right? And then yeah. you know the 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 singular producer of these processors starts to get a hit to their future revenue. Um, Huh, yeah, this will be interesting. I think 2024, you know, we'll see a lot of this play out, probably the next yep. two years, really. But um, I think it'll be interesting to to watch the costs and the adoption and then the kind of the use cases of, hey, this product, not guarantees, but this product generates, you know, X percent more productivity. I think it's huge. The opportunity is huge. The expectations are high, correctly. though. It's all priced in. So It's all priced in. Expectations yeah, what are, you, are insanely what, exactly. high. Exactly. Yeah. What yeah. are you gaining that the market isn't seeing? I right. could tell you, I can name thousands of people who know more about AI in terms of investable universe than I do. Right, right, right. right. So if I'm in the bottom of the rung, like where, where is a retail investor in this, right? And that's, that's what makes it so hard to get it right. Hmm. Makes sense. Okay, that was fun. Any final thoughts there? No, I... 
I think AI has high expectations. I don't know what it really is going to be in 10 years. Like we said the same thing about the iPhone, the iPad. Remember, we thought it was just a big iPhone. Yeah. Um, internet. We thought the internet was going to be a flop. No one's going to shop online. Apple's Vision right. Pro. We'll oh, yeah, see. that's we'll another see thing. how that comes out. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of how that memes. gets adoption. Yeah. Lots yeah, of funny people, memes right now, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it just, whether the adoption rate, you know, ex- accelerates or not, we don't know. Yeah. Right? We didn't think the Apple Watch was going to be a hit. We, the collective we, market participants, right? Um, <clears throat> but these things, like anything else, predicting the future, we just don't know. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. That was fun. Thanks everyone for tuning in today. And uh, again, this will release on Valentine's Day. Happy Happy Valentine's Valentine's Day. Day. (laughs) Take care, everyone. All right.